Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, I hope you are well. Welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I am personally fine. I'm um, nothing much has changed in my life. It's about to though. So this is the last time you're going to hear me calm and rested because I am getting my first ever puppy this week and it's very exciting. But I also know that apparently I'm not going to sleep for about four weeks and it's going to piss and shit all over me and everything that I love and own. So I might sound a little bit fragile and fraught from here on out and I apologise for that in advance. Um, But I I can't wait and I think it's just going to be good for me. It's uh, My manager has gotten me this puppy to keep me calm and uh, help me emotionally during this time. And also I think she's really doing it to keep me off Twitter. If I'm being honest, I think she's trying to keep me off social media by distracting me with a dog. Uh, Anyway, so I am so excited for you to hear today's episode because I'm such a huge fan of today's guest. I'm talking about Scarlett Curtis. She is such a great writer and such a great and inspiring activist and just human being. Everything she survived is so astounding. And I think you will really be blown away listening to her story today. Uh, She has published books such as Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies and It's Not Okay to Feel Blue and Other Lies. Both have done very well and have meant so much to so many people around the world. Uh, She refers to herself as the Kris Jenner of activism, which I love. And to be fair, she is unbelievably effective and has already changed so many laws, even at such a young age. She's someone who has personally helped me a lot in my own mental health recovery and I am honoured to say that I have fulfilled some sort of similar role in her life. I would like to give you a trigger warning that when we are discussing mental health, we do discuss suicide briefly uh, in this conversation because she did attempt suicide uh, and she talks about that in this episode and so if you are someone who is not ready to yet hear that conversation please feel free to turn away but for those of you who don't mind this is a, a really astonishing and rare story that you're about to hear I hope you enjoy it I hope you love her as much as I do although I don't think that's possible Curtis, you are a writer, an activist and a journalist. You have curated two Sunday Times best-selling books and you are the co-founder of The Pink Protest, an activist community partially responsible for changing not one, but two UK laws. Hello, welcome to my podcast. It's actually how I demand everyone introduce every conversation I have with them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to talk about how we met because I like doing that. You and I met because your dad approached me at a 
party and told me that he had a daughter who was a fan of mine and that he'd heard that I had uh, had a very severe back injury when I was younger and he told me that you had just gone through a very traumatic back surgery and asked if I would come and visit you. So I did. Uh, and upon doing so, I learned you were not, in fact, a fan of mine. Uh, <laughs> your dad has lied. I was a no, fan no, of you. <laughs> you told me you weren't on your podcast. Um, so, <laughs> so, so I turn up there all dressed I mean, up. I mean, I've heard of you. Yeah, that's heard, not the fucking same. So I turn up all dressed up for you to like surprise you. <laughs> My number one fan, Scarlett Curtis. <laughs> and you were just very kind, slightly sort of like ambivalent. <laughs> and we ended up chatting for what I thought would be, I think, you know, in my head, you know, I was smug. I was 23, 24. And I was like, oh, go there 15 minutes and absolutely change this child's Make life. Make a wish. Yeah, Make yeah, a yeah. wish, child. She will take a <laughs> selfie and, uh, <laughs> and, and I'll have done my bit to get into heaven. And then I found myself still there three hours later. This sounds wrong. In your bed. I was in your bed. Yeah, Lying you on my were bed, in the yeah. bed. I was on top of the covers, and we were sitting there. Yeah, it was a small bed. It was a sixty. It was a single. You're not making bed. me I was look any better. Yeah, okay. No. <laughs> and we were chatting all about our lives and our mental health, and laughing and crying together. And overnight, and again, it doesn't sound uncreepy. A fourteen-year-old and a twenty-four-year-old became best friends. Yes, that is the story. And it is my favorite story in the world. And it's been so amazing seeing you, someone I wasn't a fan of, um, become <laughs> become the most incredible, powerful woman um, in the world. And it becomes someone I am genuinely a fan of, not Fucking even the fact that I know you time, now. time, mate. Jesus um, You've earned your credit. But Everything that you do for young girls and young boys um, across the world is what you did for me originally. And I feel a bit like the sort of test subject of you being this person who can just make people feel seen and heard and known because you came into my life at a time when I had no friends. I had no social life. I had no school. I wasn't going to school. I wasn't doing anything. And it didn't matter because I had you. Like genuinely, you became my everything and you are without a doubt. And I, this is not being hyperbolic, but you're without a doubt the reason I'm alive today. So I see myself very much in all your actual fans, even though I'm not a fan. Thank you. <laughs> that was really fucking sweet. And I definitely feel the same way about you. I, I went to your house thinking I was going to save your life and you ended up kind of saving mine. So we have a very special, very special bond uh, where you and I have been able to be honest with each other in a way I don't think we've ever managed to achieve with anyone else. And that taught me a lot about myself and people. And uh, I've grown so much because of you. And so, yeah, anyway, this isn't a podcast where we're going nice. to get married. I also, uh, it's just a compliment. <laughs> would it be okay for you to explain... What had happened that led to uh, me, your hero, um, being brought to <laughs> your house? Uh, tell, can you tell us what happened with your back? Yes. So I grew up as a very privileged, very 
quote unquote normal, whatever that word means, um, young girl. I think my biggest problem in the world was, you know, fights at school and that I couldn't go to the parties I wanted to go to. Um, and then when I was 14, I went to have a very routine operation on my back for a condition called scoliosis, which is when you have a curvature in your spine. Uh, and they told me that it would, I, the recovery would be a few weeks. I was incredibly excited. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be so glamorous. <laughs> um, I'm going to be like Madeline. Do you remember those books, Madeline, yes. when she came back to school with a scar and everyone thought she was so cool. I was like, it's going to, that's going to be me. I'm going to watch TV for two weeks. It's going to be amazing. Um, I woke up from surgery and immediately knew that something had gone wrong uh, and was immediately told that something hadn't gone wrong and that I was just making too much of a fuss. And that basically was what the next three years of my life were. Um, I spent three years in constant crippling nerve pain. Uh, I couldn't walk. I couldn't, I could walk like round my block. I once did a sponsored walk around my block, um, which was about the furthest I could walk. And I got kicked out of my school because they didn't let me go back in a wheelchair because they thought it would be too disruptive. Um, I, my whole life just changed and during that time I was continually misdiagnosed um and sort of really quite severely mistreated by the med various medical people that I saw that's also worth mentioning um, I think that you uh you are not not very responsive to painkillers they don't really work on you. And so therefore you were in agonizing pain and no amount of painkillers could cure it. I remember there were times where you couldn't even wash because of the the nerve pain of water down your back. Yeah. Uh, I was a very smelly teenager. Yeah. I, you smelled um, great to I me, the creepy TV presenter <laughs> in your bed. <laughs> With a BOE teenager. Um, I couldn't wash. I couldn't have... Uh, material on my back so when I look at all my clothes now from when I was 14 they were all sort of size UK 40 because um, the only clothes I could wear were just basically like mm -hmm. tents on my teenage body um, and I yeah it, it was and what we realized so I after a few months they started to develop a theory that I was making the pain up um, and that it was a psychological condition and the fact that I, what I now know is I have this problem with my enzymes where I don't react to painkillers um, just meant they thought that even more because they were like, at one point I had a whole bedside table filled with Oxycontin, which is completely irresponsible to give a 15 year old girl. Um, but that added to their theory that I was making mm -hmm. it up. And then after three years of uh, getting to a point where I believed I was making it up, um, I completely believed them and thought that I had made the whole thing up and ruined my life and my family's life. Um, they went in and did another operation and they made me choose if I wanted this second operation because uh, they said it wasn't necessary. Um, and they took out some of the metal work from my back, which they'd put in originally. And it turned out that I just had a screw going into my spine the whole time. Um, and when they took it out, the pain went away and then I had a complete breakdown and once again didn't leave the house for about three years. Well, I'm not surprised <laughs> you had a, a nail that had been left inside of the most painful possible part of your body that it could have been misplaced. And yes. I imagine the PTSD, not only of the experience, not only of being in agony for three years, I saw you, it was beyond pain 
what was happening to you and mm. the despair and the loneliness and the ostracization because your because teenage friends don't know how to support one in that experience mm. and then on top of that to find out that you've been gaslit by all the people around you by the people you're supposed to trust the most which is the doctors and you've kind of ended up being taught how to gaslight yourself to find out that it was all true I mean, the PTSD from that is unimaginable. This is what's so powerful about gaslighting is that if you knew you were being gaslit, it wouldn't be that painful. Um, it would just be anger. Anger would be the thing that you felt and you'd probably leave the situation. Um, even after we found out that it was a medical mistake that caused me to be in pain, I still believed for about four years that I'd made the pain up. And I thought they would pretended to take the metal work out to sort of try and trick mm -hmm. me. Um, I just had gotten to a point where I completely had bought into this story that I'd been told about myself for years, which was that I was crazy and that I was irresponsible and that I was sort of destructive. Attention seeking. Attention seeking, didn't want to go back to school. I completely bought into it. And, you know, I think this is where we one of the many, many points where we really bonded, but I couldn't see a way out of that. And I basically thought that I was an evil, evil person. And the thing that got me out of that was discovering feminism and discovering that even though the experience I had was very specific, it was also completely universal to so many women and anyone who's ever been oppressed where you start to believe the story that people are telling you to the extent where you're perpetuating it as much as they are. Yeah, I... It's a huge problem in the current medical system, in particular for black women. We are learning more and more, especially right now during the coronavirus, that those are the disproportionate amounts of uh, deaths. But um, I am someone who is familiar with the Munchausen's accusation. <laughs> As uh, some people may have seen in February, I got en masse globally uh, bullied and accused of having Munchausen because people didn't believe it was possible to have so many illnesses and so many accidents because they don't understand uh, the condition that I have, which is called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's an invisible disability. It's a chronic illness. It's a complete nightmare for anyone who has it. It makes you very clumsy and it affects literally every single part of your body and how it functions. And so the combination of that and the fact that apparently there's a limit on how many times you're allowed to be chased by bees... There were a couple of stories where I got chased by bees. I don't know why I have bad luck with them, but the internet decided that I've been chased by bees one too many times. And that in itself confirmed I must have Munchausen. And you do always smell very nice. I wonder if it's a scent do you thing. I don't know what it is. I yeah. think it's the fact that I see them, I run, and then they think I'm suspicious. Yeah, and yeah and they exactly. They tell people yeah. as well, you know, it spreads, uh, the news spreads. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and <laughs> she reacts and so, well. <laughs> uh, what I can say from that experience, and that was painful when it happened, because I've lived in so much pain my whole life that I've at times wanted to take my own life because of it, because it feels hard to carry on. And I think you can definitely relate to that from those really difficult mm. years. But 
it's such a it's such a unique and excruciating pain to be denied your experience when you're already having to suffer through it. So to suffer through it and then to be told that it's all in your head is such a damaging part of our society and it happens all day, every day to people everywhere, especially when the illness isn't visible. What happened to you? The nail was inside your spine. You looked like a perfectly healthy, beautiful young child. Mm. So no one could see it physically on you. And therefore, they they thought you must be a just a classic, hysterical, dishonest woman. Yeah, and I think I mean that thing that happened with you was one of the most painful things as a friend that I've ever been through. Mm-hmm. Because I think something that you know we're just starting to talk about the way that women are treated within a medical context, and I think something that probably a lot of people who don't know much about this topic don't know is saying that someone has Munchausen or Munchausen by proxy is almost akin to saying that a woman is lying about a sexual assault allegation. It is the thing that people throw out very easily that the patriarchy sort of uses to deny these stories. And I was told I had Munchausen's for years. Um, It was an easy way for them to sort of justify the fact that they didn't know what was wrong with me um I was also told that I Munchausen that me and my mum were suffering from Munchausen's by proxy which is when a parent makes their child sick and we were actually so my mum was told she had to be less nice to me for about two years she had to sort of stop hugging me stop talking to me really stop telling me she loved me because they had come up with this theory that we were too close and that that would help me move on from the pain so these words and these labels have the most real implications on so mm. many people's lives, even though they're incredibly rare conditions. Um, and I think just seeing you be put through that was so traumatic, not just for you, but for so many women who have been misdiagnosed mm. and sort of mistreated at the hands of these systems. And something else, sorry, not to like bang on, but something else that really hurt me about that and the whole experience is is even if someone's making up their pain there is a real psychological reason why that person would be making up Mm. pain and whenever I was accused of making up my own pain looking back now I'm like well why didn't you take that as seriously as (laughs) anything else because if a 15 year old girl has made up a back pain like maybe look into that maybe don't just tell her the treatment I was given was I could never be in too much pain I had to push into my pain at all times so I needed a wheelchair but I was never allowed to use it and I just think you see it again and again the way that women are treated in the medical system and it is something our society needs to wake up to you know 10 years ago it was also unbelievable in 2020 to see people using the word munchausen which is a super serious and debilitating mental health problem debilitating for you and all of the people around you for people to throw that around like a punchline as if that's funny as if it's a joke blew my mind where where that would be a very serious mental health that would be like making fun of me having bipolar or schizophrenia or some other incredibly debilitating and hugely stigmatized mental health condition that was something that that really disappointed me at in where we're at with this much information about how to be careful and be thoughtful around like how many public suicides do we need how many statistics do we need before we learn how to be careful and thoughtful and responsible and kind Completely. And I also think, I mean, that was what I was thinking. I was like, if she had that, you wouldn't be tweeting about it like it was a joke. And it was the same with me when I was sick. I was like, if I have that, 
maybe take it almost more seriously than if I'm just well, in yeah, pain. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, there's a tiny part of me. I think the whole thing was absolutely horrendous and mostly not just for me because, you know, I'm like fairly protected. I'm, I live a good life. I have a wonderful support network at home. But I felt really awful for anyone out there who struggles with invisible disabilities who got very, very triggered, yeah. understandably, by that. Um, but there is also one tiny part of me <laughs> um, <laughs> that feels strangely proud that people think that I am I've got such big balls that if I was actually <laughs> exposed quote unquote for having lied about my entire history of everything all of like all of the things that I've been through and that I'm just sticking around putting out a podcast <laughs> like living my life carrying on on social media they must think I have balls the size of Texas I feel weird. I feel and like a bad motherfucker. I'm not going to lie. The fact that people think that I'm still showing up, <laughs> if any of that had been real, it makes me feel like Batman, honestly. <laughs> I also think they must think you have the imagination of like, I'm JK off, Rowling, you but know. less transphobic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <anyway>. um, <laughs> I, I also, I also think something that it, it took me a long time to acknowledge and takes people a long time is we imagine doctors and hospitals and the medical system as something completely neutral. Yeah. Like, how would that be different for men and for women? And surprise, surprise, just like every other aspect of society, mm -hmm. it's very different for men and women. And I remember seeing it even at 15 when I'd go to a doctor's appointment with my mum compared to when I'd go with my dad. And the level of respect that we'd get when I was with my dad compared to my mum was off the charts. And, you know, you, you just hear again and again and again horror stories about the way that women are treated in hospitals and then men going in and going, oh, it was, you know, Fine. I mean, not for everyone, but it's something we that people find hard to get their heads around. Did you ever get the chance to confront the doctors who told you it was all in your head? Um, no, I didn't. And I remember I was still in hospital, but they were very hesitant to admit that they had found anything wrong because they didn't want to be sued. The reason I didn't get any kind of revenge or confrontation is that we just, my family decided not to press charges and not to explore it at all purely because of how traumatic that would have been on me because it would have you. just raised everything up again which I think again is why so many of these types of abuses go unpunished is because the legal system also doesn't work where the, the person persecuting ends up being re-traumatized re-punished and sort of trying to be framed as a liar a terrible person yeah. yeah a liar well um i want to talk to you next about the impact all of that has had on your mental health and i will do that straight after this break this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're gonna get that hour 
where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. And we're back. So, okay, you went through this unfathomable trauma and then you came out of it with very legitimate PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And what did that feel like for you? How did that manifest for you? You hear these stories about other sick children. I remember, you know, hearing about like girls who were sick and then after they got better they started a charity or ran million marathons or like <laughs> hiked up Mount Everest and you know there's this whole idea of that and I totally assumed I was going to be one of them I was like great I'm not in pain anymore I'm going to go you know grab all my sick child prizes and I didn't I just collapsed I was almost more debilitated than I'd been when I when I was living in chronic pain, I couldn't leave my bedroom. I had a panic attack every single time someone rang the doorbell, someone left the house. I had to drop out of school again. I tried to go back to school and had to immediately leave. Um, and then it was about, re that level of it being that bad was about the next two or three years of my life. I was in like a rehabilitation center for a few months. Um, I, it just, I tried every medication, I tried everything. And um, yeah, it was, it's, it was really interesting for me looking back now to have seen such severe physical disability right next door to such severe mental illness. Um, because I think it taught me a lot about the difference in the way society treats those, treats those two conditions. And really it was when my mental health got really bad that I stopped being able to talk to anyone because the shame of it was so much worse than the shame of being 
sick or in a wheelchair because I couldn't explain it. Yeah. And also, again, because you are living in a position of privilege, it's like, well, well, she's this, uh, she comes from a wealthy family and she's pretty and she's slim and, and, and she has a loving family. Why, how could she still be sad? How ungrateful for you to not be able to control your own mental health and your yeah. own trauma. And if, and I internalised mm-hmm. all of that. You know, I was the person saying that more than anyone. I was like, I've got this incredible family. I've got, you know, anything I need. I'm not in pain anymore. And I cannot stop crying or get out of bed or wanting to die. And that level of self-hatred, and I think mine was on quite an extreme level because I, I do come from privilege and all of that but I think everyone feels that to a certain extent with mental illness everyone thinks what have I got to be sad about and people say it to you as well you know I've had so many people in my life go what have you got to be anxious about what have you got to you know be depressed about and you're just that's what makes it worse because you that's what makes you start to hate yourself because you're having those conversations with yourself constantly. It's why I think a lot of people don't seek help because they presume that either you know and I think a lot of this comes down to media representation of mental illness that we see mental illness only ever as a sort of schizophrenic murderer mostly right there isn't much representation of just someone who is numb with depression who can't feel anything who uh who feels debilitated and cannot empathize or cannot function properly or however your your mental health might uh take form Mm. um so we either think that that means you are mentally ill and we associate it with the worst and scariest possible exaggerated sensationalized depiction of mental health so therefore we're like well i don't want to be what that is but also we think that things like trauma can only come in the forms of something incredibly uh violent and um obviously terrifying and uh almost physical like something like coming back from war we presume that those are the only people who can have trauma or someone who was brutally attacked we don't understand how micro traumas can still come in and enter the brain and in and destroy our capacity to fully grasp happiness yeah and trauma i I always say trauma rots your brain like it literally rots your brain and when i was diagnosed with ptsd i remember laughing so i was like only soldiers get ptsd Mm -hmm. like i've been in my bedroom for five years (laughs) i have not been through a war and now all the you know i completely have PTSD and had PTSD and it's a terrible illness and I think something I really experienced I'd only ever seen mental illness as either exactly what you're saying huge these larger than life depictions or as like a sweet little girl crying on the sofa and you know her mum giving her a hug and what my mental illness did to me at that time was I just became a horrible person like I think often we don't talk about that side of it. You know, I was mean to my family. I was aggressive. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I cut everyone out of my life. I I just couldn't. It was like it was rotting. It, my, I, my whole personality was just gone. And I would also almost sometimes see it like a film outside of me. Like I'd want to go to someone, I'm really hurting, I need help. And instead I'd go, you're horrible. You don't know how to talk to me. Like, yeah leave um and I would watch it happening and I'd be like no 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 I want to ask you for help I want to ask you for help but instead I would just be screaming and I think so often 
this is something I, I just find with people I know now and people I talk to through like advocacy work, but their mental illness makes them push everyone away. And that means it's harder and harder and harder to get help. And that is something that is heartbreaking. And I think it's probably something that is quite a timely conversation right now with so many people stuck indoors without access to therapy, if they were even able to access it in the first place. And a lot of their old issues are surfacing because we don't have the distraction of day-to-day life um it's something that i've been talking about a lot lately is is how much must be coming up for so many people either in family dynamics or just in our own brains and so it's great to be able to talk about the different ways in which mental illness can manifest and the fact that you shouldn't feel any shame around it and there's no rule book as to who can get it or what it looks like i think something I learned so much. So I I put together this book last year of 75 essays of different people writing about what mental health meant to them from sort of teenagers to Hollywood stars. Mm -hmm. Um, And the biggest lesson I learned from that was this sort of twofold idea, which is one, mental illness can affect anyone. Your money doesn't protect you from it. Looks don't protect you from it. You know, family doesn't protect you from it. A partner doesn't protect you from it. But also it doesn't affect everyone the same. And that's exactly what you were saying. And it's sort of trying to hold those two ideas in your head at the same time can be very hard. But I think it's so important for us, especially now, just to understand that this is something anyone can go through, but also dependent on your race and on your gender and on your physical ability it is such a different experience to go through and you and i spoke yesterday uh, about taking this conversation one step further to a place where a lot of people won't because it's a very scary topic to discuss and for anyone who might be triggered by discussion of suicide now is a good time to turn off the podcast um because it's something that scarlett and i have both struggled with and uh, and I would like to talk about that with you now. And thank you for being willing to like be to, candid too. with me about it. So would you talk to me about your experience with suicidal ideation and just generally the, the feeling that you cannot uh, sustain life on this earth any longer? Yeah, definitely. And I do think it's so important to talk about because it is the one area of my own mental health that I see people are still so ashamed of and so scared to talk to me about. And I've been open about this in the past, but it is very, very, suicide is very, very hard to talk about. And there is still a huge amount of stigma attached to that. And in all the work that mental health activists have done, I don't know how much better it's getting. But um, my aunt, when I was 13 my aunt died of suicide um, and she had been very sick for a long time and I had always been very confused by her illness we we weren't really told what was wrong with her um we it was sort of just all very quiet and not explained um and so that I think added to my sort of fear of mental illness and my fear of suicidal thoughts and when I started having suicidal thoughts I think when I was 17 and they came hand in hand with the PTSD and the depression like so often they do because you just can't really see a point in being alive anymore it's so exhausting it's so exhausting and also it's for me it was almost like it was very intrusive I would just suddenly get this wave in my head like someone had shot an arrow in my head 
um, that was just like, you should die. You shouldn't be here anymore. And obsessively thinking about ways uh, that I could do it. And also there's this really hard thing that happens with a lot of severe mental illnesses where while at the beginning of your illness, you might have a wonderful life and it might just come out of nowhere. The longer it goes on, the more your life falls apart. So actually something my dad used to say to me, which was very blunt, but very true is like when I was about three years into it and had lost all my friends, all my education, all my, you know, personality, he was like, anyone in your position now would be depressed, even if they didn't have depression. Um, and when I was 19, I made the sort of quite rogue decision to move to New York and I was living in New York on my own. I was completely alone. I would just stay in bed all day, every day. Um, I'd order food in. I remember it's at one point, everything hurt so much inside that I couldn't even wear clothes. Emotionally, Because it was just emotionally yeah. everything hurt but I couldn't I couldn't have anything touching my skin I just remember sitting for like a week in my bed naked because the idea of putting a clothes on or go having a shower or brushing my teeth was just I I'd, I was sort of slowly dying I, I c- couldn't figure out how to be a human anymore um and then one night I just decided I'd had enough and I didn't think it was going to get better at that time and that's what your mental illness tells you as well. It tells you it's not going to get better. It was going to get better and it did get better, but mental illness is very clever and um, it is very tricksy and it tells you all kinds of things that aren't true. And it told me that I was never going to get better and I wasn't worth living anymore. And And that you felt like a burden, didn't you? Because that's what I felt like. I felt like a burden on everyone. Well, that's what's so hard, you know, when obviously when my aunt died it broke all our hearts and it was the most painful thing in the world and it's hard when someone in your life um dies that way to understand why and how but I was there at 19 with a family who loved me with friends who loved me um all my brain was telling me was that they would throw a party if I died like literally my illness was telling me they would be happier if I wasn't there anymore and it's not that that's true. It's not that they've done anything to show you that. It's that you, that's what the illness is. It's like when you get flu, you get a runny nose. When you have severe depression, you are told that it would be better if you died. And uh, I, 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 yeah, I, and it was a very dark night. And thankfully, uh, it didn't work as uh, that's why I'm here on this podcast today. Uh, and, I I don't really believe in rock bottoms because I'd been told so many times that I was going to have a rock bottom and I'd also been told so many times that this was my rock bottom and then it kept getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have this magical idea of rock bottoms that you somehow hit this rock and then like shoot back up to the surface and you're completely fine. And actually for me, I hit that rock and then slowly, slowly, slowly started swimming up to the surface. But... I do think after that, it was when I really asked for help and tried to get help and things did very, very slowly get better. So what helped you after that? Um, I have always been very, very bad at asking for help. Uh, I have a lot of amazing people in my life who would help me and 
I think me and you both do this, mm-hmm. but we we disappear, shut ourselves off. Um, we disappear. James and I call it the bum hole. That's where we talk about <laughs> where I go to when I am in trouble. I can't speak. I can't. Um, I can't move, and I become yeah. very, very detached and distant from everyone I love, even him. And he's the person I love the most in the world. Uh, followed by you obviously uh calm down <laughs> i can already see the rage um i uh and we refer, yeah we refer to it as this sort of this dark cavernous place that i go to where no one else can reach me is inside this mythical asshole in the sky um so if you if anyone else out there wants um, to use that as a description beautiful uh i might start calling it the vagina yeah, hole great. and then we'll be next to each other <laughs> Um, mine's a bit cosier and cleaner yeah, than fine. yours. Well, <laughs> you don't know about my uh, bum hole, no. okay? So it's not my bum. Anyway, it's not my <laughs> bum hole, okay? It's a fictitious it's a bum, bum hole that's very clean. Gwyneth Paltrow's bum hole? Sure, yes. <laughs> sure, that's very clean. <laughs> oh um, I This has gone mad. Um, I do the same thing. I shut myself off from everyone. I can't speak to anyone. I can't talk. I can't eat. I can't do anything. And I remember after the night that I tried to take my own life was the first time I had called someone and said, I need help. And um, I, you know what happened when I asked for help? I got help. And it sometimes is as simple as that. And it had taken me four years to figure that out and be brave enough to say it, um, even though I'd been offered help. But I asked for help and I started to see a therapist and I started to try a new medication and but again I mean it it was about two years till I started to feel even vaguely normal. Oh it's a long journey for anyone but it's not as long as the amount of time you've spent being unhappy. Yeah and every every period of that time it does get a bit easier and what I found is the the more healed that my brain became, the easier it was for me to ask for more help and get more help. So it slightly becomes like this snowball where the beginning is so hard and you're not seeing much progress, but then the stronger you get, the more things you can do. You know, I did therapy for a year. Then after a year, I started doing yoga and that helped me so much. And then after another six months, I started on a medication and that felt a bit easier to do because of the therapy and the yoga. And it suddenly becomes easier um and yeah but it's still something I live with every day you know it's something I am hyper hyper aware of every second of every day it's like having a small child in my brain that I have to look after constantly that's a great way of putting it that's exactly it and also I think it's really important for everyone to realize that it's not just a constantly upward trajectory that you have oh no you have uh you have dips all of the time, as you do with anything. Like imagine if you are training for a marathon. Do you know what I mean? You're gonna you're gonna roll mm. your ankle. You're going to get nipple chafe. Uh, things are going to happen. They're gonna slow you down. You're gonna lose your motivation. Yeah. Um, as with anything, you have to train for. It's a process. It's a learning process. It's a process of growth. And there are hurdles. It's not easy, and it's not consistent. And I mean, even just in February, when all that shit happened to me. I, I never I never take people's personal opinion of me very seriously because I was so disliked as a child that I uh I including yeah, by me. Yeah, exactly. Well, you were just you just didn't care, which is almost worse. Um <laughs> I uh but as a child I was disliked and and it set me up for a life of never expecting to be liked, which is kind of perfect if you are in advocacy mm-hmm. because no one likes you if you're a woman <laughs> in advocacy. Um 
but being gaslit about something that has ruined my whole life and caused me pain every single day that triggered me in a way that I didn't see coming and knocked me sideways and suddenly mm. the suicidal thoughts came back and the depression came back and the inability to function or bathe or brush my teeth came back for a while and um, mm. I was amazed because of how much great work I've done on myself since my suicide attempt eight years ago and all of the work I've done until then and all the therapy but I was able to realise that that dip didn't undo all of the amazing hard work I've done and the speed at which I've come out of that dip is testament to the fact that it was just I stumbled and that's okay and that's that's part of the whole journey that's exactly the way to put it because the way my depression is these days is I get um I'm okay and I'm coping and then I get these crashes where I can't get out of bed again I have the suicidal thoughts again it all comes back um and at that moment you're like well what have I been doing Mm. like none of this has worked but as the years have gone on those times have gotten shorter and shorter and the bounce back has gotten easier and easier and easier and it is like building up these muscles and it doesn't mean you're not going to twist your ankle um or you know scrape your knee it just means you're stronger and able to heal quicker and I think also you learn your own triggers like uh I was diagnosed a few years ago with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and that it's not I um, it's I have a mild case for obsessive compulsive disorder but when I start getting low I start obsessively cleaning and seeing germs and being very like I'll leave my house and all I'll think about is a you know scarf that I left on the floor and just need to go home to sort that out and I've learned now like oh when that happens you're getting low, so look after yourself. Mm. And I've learned all these little tells that I have that mean I can stop things before they get too bad because I recognise them in myself from a time before. And what's interesting is that someone might hear you say, well, this terrible thing happened to me and I had this injury and then I was in all of this pain and then I have this enzyme deficiency, which means that I can't process painkillers. And then I had anxiety and depression and then I had OCD and they're like, well, that sounds like an awful lot. She must be making this up because no one can have this many issues. It's not possible. Whereas no one realises how much of a dominoes game this all is and how many of these things link to each other cause or perpetuate one another it's not as simple as someone just having one or two things everything is interchangeable pain is intersectional (laughs) it really is (laughs) it really is um and also the truth is that the two most underfunded parts of our medical system are mental health and women's health and actually when women are having when women and people suffering from mental illness are having all these labels thrown at them, it's more as a result of our deficiency at properly diagnosing women's medical issues and mental health issues rather than someone adding loads of labels to their collection. And also, if you are someone who is doubting someone else's mental health or physical health struggles, then lucky you, you privileged motherfucker yeah. that you don't know what this feels like. Lucky you that you imagine it must, that you are so far away from that experience that you can't fathom that it could possibly be true. You have no idea your privilege. For people to think that this is fun or that this is, this is that people are even, I'm not saying that some people don't exaggerate or that, that some people don't have conditions that make them make conditions up, but 
to be someone who just with no fact, with no evidence, with no proof, just dismiss someone at their claim, then you are someone who has never experienced either a loved one or yourself going through this sort of experience. Lucky you and, and yeah. go fuck yourself. Yeah. And I think the it is the hardest thing in the world to tell someone that you are struggling with a mental illness. So if someone tells you that, the chances are that they're really struggling because uh, it's not something you'd ever do for fun. Also, it's another invisible illness, isn't it? We need we need yeah. a broken arm. We need to see a physically fractured, like sort of almost decapitated. Oh yeah, I used to have this obsession where I used to wish I was bleeding out my eyes. I don't know why that was the thing I always thought of, but I was like, maybe if I was bleeding out of my eyeballs, people would believe me and take this seriously. Yeah, um, about your mental health. And about both, yeah. with my physical pain, because that was also invisible, and with my mental health. I was like, I just wish I had something. I have a few scars on my back from surgery and I'm, I love them because I'm like, it's proof. All I wanted was some external signifier that my brain and my body were in agony and no one could see well, it. I always believed you. Yeah. Also, bleeding eyes might look cool. <laughs> it's very Billie Eilish. Um, <laughs> very Billie Eilish. Right, we're going to another break. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So all of this that you have dealt with has propelled you into, uh, I guess, a, a fight against so many systems of oppression. And it's been kind of your way of, I suppose, recycling all of your trauma and turning it into something positive. And now that's what's been the heart of your activism. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I really struggle sometimes with uh it being like labeled as this thing that I do for the world because the truth is that 99% of it is what I do for me mm -hmm. like I spent my entire teenage years and then my early 20s feeling completely alone feeling completely ashamed feeling hating myself and not understanding that I've been gaslit and when I discovered feminism and when I started joining feminist activist groups. And when I started talking about my own mental health online as a form of advocacy, it was the best thing that had ever happened to me. And in a way it was completely selfish because it became it becomes addictive. It, it, you know, feminism has given me friends. It's given me confidence. It's given me an understanding of my history. It's given me so much. Um, and I still do all of these things, I think mostly selfishly, but yes, the short story is that what I went through has led to me committing a lot of my life to feminist activism and mental health advocacy. I think there's also a high when you realise that something that hurt you when you were younger is 
now stopping at your hands, that when you are contributing to the end, to the ceasefire of some form of oppression. You know, for me, for example, whenever I have girls messaging me about their eating disorders or the fact that they've now started eating again because of I weigh or because, or they've they've started to uh, unfollow uh, influencers and throw out all of their laxativities and doing all these different things. When that happens, that's, that gives me a, a rush of, of recognizing that I'm erasing a part of that toxicity mm. and that feels really good. Yeah. And I think I've always been, even throughout all of this, I've always been quite a positive person mm. about the world. I've always tried to believe that the world was a good place and there were good people mm. in it. And the older you get and the more experiences you go through and the more abuse you go through, that thought gets challenged. <laughs> and you're like, hmm, maybe not. Uh, there might be some bad people out there. Even though when I was going through it, I thought I was the bad person and they were all just doing their jobs. Um, but the more that you engage in activism and these communities and you see change happen in real time, the more you can reinforce that idea that the world actually is a wonderful place and there are people out there who want to help and want to make mm -hmm. change. And I am definitely someone who grapples with this. Like, I've been an activist since I was 19 uh, and I just kind of wasn't as successful as it at it until I had the immense privilege of being on a hit show. Uh, which was the good place, um, and that's where I yeah, know you from. Such an asshole. <laughs> um, and so uh, that show gave me the platform to take the words I've been saying for over ten years uh, on as it to a level where everyone got to hear those words, and suddenly it was uh, treated as if I'd never said those words before. Now it pissed a lot of people off that I was saying these things now from a position of extreme privilege when I was calling out beauty standards as someone who is. Uh, on the cover of magazines where I was talking about fat phobia uh, as a slim person, as a person who is now slim, even though before I was big when I was talking about all of these things. And so I constantly am trying to figure out how to walk the line of of trying to fight for rights from a place of privilege and and working through whether or not the guilt of my own privilege should be the thing that stops me from still fighting for the cause because they're not going to listen to the people who are more marginalised than me. Is that something that you can relate to? Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, when we ask why are so many activists privileged or already famous or whatever it is, it's not a coincidence. Like activism is one of the hardest tasks that any human can undertake you're basically being asked to put your personal trauma and the worst thing that has ever happened in your life on screen, on in the public for everyone to not only criticize, but debate and undermine and tell you is wrong and have taken away. And, and then you get you know, harassed I, and I, you get death threats and rape threats sometimes. I mean, it, it's really and, intense. And that, and then the other half, you know, I now I'm so lucky to have so many friends who are activists. And even when I think about my trans friends who are activists, the main thing they get asked to do in the public arena is trans debates which is when they're there telling about the worst times of their lives and there's some you know cis white person there telling them that they don't exist like that is not something anyone should ever have to be put mm -hmm. through and people do this because they believe in it and because they don't want anyone to go through the same thing that they went through but it is incredibly hard and it's mostly unpaid and it's 
really unforgiving. And I think when we say, when we look back at the feminist movement and we go, oh, why did feminism sort of lull in the 90s? It's because the women that were doing it in the 80s were destroyed by it. Like when you look at what those women went through, when they were all they were asking for was, you know, paid childcare or equal rights or even just being treated normally in the eyes of the law. And I think it's this, we we still haven't figured out a way to make activism a sustainable thing. And I feel the only reason I'm able to continue with it is so far has been because of my privilege. It's been because I can take unpaid work. It's been because I do have a support system around me. It's been because I have had the years and years of therapy that it took to be able to be strong mm. enough, paid for therapy to be able to be strong enough to be put in this position. And I always think if I'm not going to say this, who else will? Like, it's got to be on me to say... Well, no, plenty of other people will say it, but very few people will be heard. That is the problem. Yes, yeah. And and I don't even mean say the advocacy, Mm -hmm. say how ruined the system is and how it does Mm. sort of only bring privileged people in. And again, I think it's one of those things, what's that quote? The greatest sign of genius is being able to hold two thoughts in your head Mm. at once, you know? Yes, people who are privileged are maybe not the perfect people to be talking about these issues. And we should restructure this system where people get paid for their advocacy, where they get protected, where they don't get abused, where they don't get harassed, where it becomes like a more normal job, like politics or anything. But also until we figure that system out, the people that have the privilege to be able to spread these messages should be encouraged to do it more than anything and should be not torn down in this way that is just so disgusting and you know I see it with you and it's also it's not a coincidence that people tear you down because you're a brown woman and because you're you know a woman and it's just we're you know we're biting the hand that feeds us but it's the system isn't working at the moment um but the answer to that is not to lash out at the people who were at least trying. I agree. And and I think that therefore the responsibility lies with us as I've definitely seen you do and I am doing uh, now, now that I... Because it's a funny thing, right? You, you have to get the mic before you can pass it. You mm. have to yeah. say all the stuff and you have to be outrageous and you have to turn up yourself as the privileged person and, and have these words met by other privileged people. And once you have the mic firmly in your hand, which is hard to get as a woman, then you can pass it. And so what I've loved about your uh, advocacy with the pink protest is that you have used it to leverage other young activists and people who are campaigning for rights and you have helped them with your privilege, change the laws that they have been campaigning for. And so I think that that's very important that while, yes, we are the ones given the spotlight and thank God we are saying something with that privilege, we then also have a duty and responsibility to make sure that we bring other people up with us because then we have the opportunity to shed more of a light on them. Yeah. And I think that that in itself sort of is hard to wrap your head around. And I think, you know, it's like, so I was working for, at the pink protest and we did this campaign with this incredible teenager called Amica George and we got the government to pass a law that said there'd be free menstrual products in all lower schools and up schools in the UK and after that campaign I was asked if I wanted to do a book about feminism and sort of the work that I've been doing for the last few years and I was 21 at the time and I was like no 
that was not a book anyone needs to read. Maybe a podcast episode, but no one needs to read my like 21 year old rich white girl ode to feminism. Like that, <laughs> that book shouldn't exist. But I just because that book shouldn't exist doesn't mean a book shouldn't exist. And we ended up doing an anthology with 52 women in, including you. Um, and but also, you know, including 15 teenagers and activists and people from around the world. And I think there are ways of doing it. But also the answer isn't just to tear people down because that's what we're all fighting against. Absolutely. Well, I thank you very much for your work. And I am really, I constantly learn from your own self-awareness and your ability to self-educate and update and I appreciate it and it's something that I could stand to continue to get better at but <laughs> it's a it's a it's a learning process I suppose not true but also it's weird with our relationship because I feel like you kind of made me <laughs> who I am so sometimes I'm like she's just talking to her own creation <laughs> what you're my Frankenstein it's like Westworld yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, uh, Feministine. I um, something. Well, thank you, think thank you for coming on to talk to me about all of these things. And uh, and where can people find you on social media? You can find me um, at Scar Curtis on Instagram and Twitter occasionally. Although Twitter's not a nice place, it isn't. I'm just going to say that. Is it? Yeah, it's not Twitter's fault. Yeah. It's human beings' fault. Oh yeah, no, it, it's not. Um, Twitter's fault but it you know places uh, platforms come and go and I'm more on Instagram at the moment so you can find me there and you can also buy Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies and It's Not Okay for Blue and Other Lies and they're not just me banging on they're lots of other great people and all the money from both of them goes to charity yay all right before you go will you yay. please tell me uh, Scarlett Curtis what do you weigh? I weigh my friendships mostly with you I weigh my softness and belief that the world is actually a good place my love of my family my need to make the world a slightly better place by the time I leave it than when I came here and my strength which is something very hard for me to say I find it hard to say that I'm strong but why do you find it hard I am I think I still feel weak so much of the time that it's hard to say that I'm strong but I am and I'm all the more strong for overcoming that weakness I absolutely agree you're one of the strongest people I've ever met I can't believe what I've watched you go through over the past decade but I'm uh, thrilled and honoured to have been allowed to be there and here's to another decade or five Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I just want to give an extra massive thank you to the people who helped me make this. Sophia Jennings, my producer and researcher. Kimmy Lucas, my producer. Andrew Carson, my editor. James Blake, my boyfriend, who made the beautiful music for this show. And now I'd like to leave you by passing the mic to a member of our community sharing their I way. I weigh being a supportive friend and partner. I weigh my work ethic. I weigh being a first-generation PhD student and a neuroscientist in psychiatric research. I weigh loving my equally ambitious, intelligent, and supportive boyfriend. I weigh being a cat lover, a great listener, and being someone who empowers others to find their own voice. Want to make mom's day? 
Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.